Hey, it's Mark Shifley here. You're listening to the Jet Centric Podcast. Hey there, Jets fans. Welcome back to episode 49 of the Jet Centric Podcast. Um, as you can tell, I still don't have much of a voice here, but uh, we did record some audio for you guys not too long ago. Uh, actually, probably about four or five days ago, a roundtable. Um, that audio will still come out. Uh, do actually have it now and uh, just haven't done anything with it. But instead, I'm going to pass this on to you guys. We got our interview with Kurt Kielbeck, legend uh, and uh, play-by-play guy for the Winnipeg Jets uh, 1.0 and then also with the Phoenix Coyotes. Chris does an interview with him, does a really good job. I will say that Kurt's audio, for some reason, was quite quiet in it. So once you're done listening to me ramble here in the uh, the intro, uh, you might want to turn your volume up. Uh, we weren't able to do anything with it in time to finally put, uh, put it out. So kind of settled for just putting it out as is. So um, sorry we weren't able to boost the sound, at least this time. In the future, we'll try and uh, do that. But it had been so long since we posted some audio, and the other audio isn't ready yet. So I uh, decided to go with uh, this. Chris did a great job. Kurt was awesome. And uh, he gave us a new outro for the podcast. So that's great. And he also upgraded us from a podcast to a broadcast. So uh, you'll, you'll see when you listen. Anyhow, enjoy it. Here it goes. Welcome back to the Jet Centric Podcast. Here with Chris. Just a quick reminder to rate us on iTunes. We need that. I am here with one of the most uh, amazing people from Winnipeg Jets 1.0. This is somebody that everybody recognizes and has probably some part of your heart. And we're very happy to have Kurt Keel back with us today. Thanks, Kurt. Thanks for being with us. Oh, it's good to be here, Chris. Right on. We appreciate it. Uh, we usually like to start off just how did you get into the business, whether broadcasting um, back in the day? How did how did you do that? Oh, it just kind of came about naturally. My father was in the business. Uh, he was a sportscaster in Winnipeg back at the old CKY in the 50s, and then eventually moved on to Saskatchewan. And I enjoyed what he did, and he often let me accompany him, and he'd be calling a hockey game, and I'd be in the press box with him, and the legendary Cactus Jack Wells on, on many occasions watching Billy Mosienko when I was just a little kid. It, it kind of got into the blood, and I decided at that stage, in fact, my mother was known to say she uh, was I was the only person she knew of who knew exactly what he wanted to be and what he wanted to do from the time he was six or seven years old. That's awesome. Um I wasn't going to ask you this, but uh, I wasn't sure of of the you know your your dad and whatnot. Does the voice come naturally? Because that's obviously other than your cadence, the voice is is the recognizable part. Uh, obviously, as well as the cadence, does that come naturally, or is that something you worked on? Uh, no, no. The uh, the clarity or whatever it is of, of speech is something that. Uh that I was taught by my parents at a very young age. They used to correct me any time I made a grammatical error, even though it great too. But as far as uh, the voice is concerned, no, my dad's got a Mickey Mouse voice. <laughs> so he, he, he often said that himself, and uh, my voice was, was deeper than his for sure. So, uh, But he spoke very clearly, and so did my mother, and I, I, I attempted to, to follow that. And and then and then the cadence. That's just your natural flow. Is that is that something that is not planned? That's not planned at all. That's just something that that just comes about. You you do something often enough, and I guess you fall into a particular pattern. And I can remember many years ago uh, there was a 
Rick and James did uh, did a show on uh, City FM, and it was a sound-alike contest uh, about me, and they had people phoning in and mimicking my hockey broadcasting style. And I was driving along one time, and I was laughing, and I was enjoying listening to the show, and I thought, I don't say that. I don't do that. And then I went back to the studio, and I put together a highlight package, and I said, I do that. <laughs> so I had no idea. No, it, it was just something that... Uh, that just came about naturally. I was trying to find the quote. I remember Jay Onright, I think, from TSN mentions whenever they play the Ovechkin goal, something about you sounding like you're calling a horse race on ice or something like that. And I, I couldn't couldn't find the quote, but I think it's very uh, very appropriate because it, it's true. And another funny story, uh, somebody that I know does an impression of you and actually um, falsified and pretended to be you on a post-game show one time uh, after a Jets game. <laughs> Okay. And it was really good. You didn't see anything on tour? No, it was fantastic. He just pretended oh. to be you and that it was a good game. It's not a friend of mine, friend of a friend, and it was it was really funny. Okay. <laughs> I guess it's the uh, most sincere form of flattery, or so they say. For sure, and I don't know. Other than that, gentlemen, uh, I, I've never heard anybody that can do it. Everybody tries it. kind of like trying to do the moonwalk, right? You just you think you can sound like it, and nobody can do it. I've never been compared to Michael Jackson. Well, we'll talk about the dancing. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. yeah, you know, yeah, the dance. That, that's about it. We'll, we'll leave Michael out of it. Um, how how did you get your start with the Jets? How did that come about? That just came about uh, by total surprise. I was sitting at home one day, and the phone rang, and it was uh, Ken Nicholson from uh, CJOB, who was the voice of the Winnipeg Jets and the WHA, and they were looking for someone to do the color. Mm-hmm. And Apparently, Cactus Jack Wells had walked by because uh, they had been looking for a while and they hadn't found anybody they liked. And a lot of people had applied, but for whatever reason. And Cactus Jack Wells happened to walk by and said, ah, I'll get Jimmy's boy. He's off in Yorkton, Saskatchewan. He'll do a good job for you. So they called me and I uh, sent them a tape, but they liked what they heard. I did an exhibition game in Colorado and I was hired the next day. So it just came absolutely out of the blue. Right? It was something I had dreamed about, but I guess in the back of my mind, I had probably given up on the dream because by this time I was, I guess, almost 30 and uh, married with uh, with children living in Saskatchewan. And, and uh, I, you know, I really hadn't uh, thought about the NHL for a while at that point. And, and then suddenly this, this thing uh, materialized. So you started doing color. I'm a little bit young to remember you doing color. I only remember you as the play-by-play guy, and then that switched at some point. Yeah, for three years I did the color when uh, it, uh, the rights were on CJOB, and then uh, the rights were assumed by CKY Radio. And when uh, we crossed the street, uh, it was suggested by the management at radio that that maybe we change hats and that Fryer would do the color and I would do the play-by-play. I think it worked out because Fryer was a much better storyteller than I was, and, and he had the opportunity to, to tell his stories uh, it, it more so than, than had he been doing the play-by-play. Plus, his eyesight was beginning to, to uh, die out on him. So it worked out, I think, for both of us. So that leads me to two questions. The first one is about color guys. What what? Who was your favorite? Who's good at it um, in, in the time you worked? Well, obviously, I enjoyed working with the Friar because of his storytelling ability and the fact that uh, he and I would argue on the air, and it's something you don't hear very often play-by-play people. I think you should hear more of it. They always seem to want to agree with one another. And the Friar would 
he would uh, say something that would get me in a lather and I would react and then <laughs> all of a sudden he'd, he'd wink at me and I'd realize he hadn't believed a word he said. <laughs> he hadn't worked up. But uh, he was good to work with with that regard. I worked with a guy in uh, in Phoenix by the name of Tom Curvers who was uh, excellent as a color man because he saw stuff that uh, other people didn't see and he brought them forward. And of course I had the opportunity in, in Winnipeg to work with a uh, legendary broadcaster, Don Whitman, and uh, his contacts, his uh, command of the language, and his general knowledge was uh, something that I tapped into on a regular basis. It was great to work with him. I worked with Ted Irvin, who had been with the New York Rangers and, of course, uh, now lives in Gimli and follows hockey very closely and was very successful as an NHL career. So, I don't know, there was a lot of people, really, and, and I almost hate to uh, mention them because I know once I hang up the phone, I'll say, oh, I right. And, uh, and I don't want to offend anybody that way. So what you mentioned about Fryer is that he was a good storyteller. And for me, my favorite part of, of your calling a game was that you weren't a homer. Um, I know that's changed now with the regional channels and all that kind of stuff where it's more acceptable. But I always felt that that was a big part of your game, if you will, that you kind of called the game pretty evenly. Is that is that? Am I here? Did I hear that right when I was younger? And is that something that, that, that you strive for? That was something that I definitely strive for. And I thank you for uh, for acknowledging that because to me that was very important. And I don't like uh, the way a lot of the broadcasts are done now with people, you know, coming right out and cheering. I think a little bit, by example, of the Toronto Blue Jay telecast. You'll see Buck Martinez. I think he does a great job. He tells stories about players from both sides. And, course that tells a few more about the Blue Jays because he's more closely connected to them and then all of a sudden the Blue Jay hits a deep fly and he says out of here ball get out of here and I think that just uh, takes away his credibility yeah I was listening to some of your clips earlier and I, I mean really the level is 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 there's not much of a difference when the Sabres scored to when the the Jet the Jets scored in one of the clips I watched and I, I always thought that that was the way it should, you know kind of the way it should be and and it's definitely changed changed all a heck of a lot I always uh, imagine someone driving in from out of town or landing at an airport and turning on a radio and, and hearing the broadcast and wondering which team that I was connected with. And to me, if he had a hard time figuring it out until commercial time or, or later in the broadcast, then I feel like uh, that, was, that was something I said for myself. Ah, I feel very validated that, that I've known that since I was <laughs> seven or eight years old. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, in fact, I got, uh, I got in trouble a couple of times. Uh, some people thought I uh, favored the opponent. I thought, well, maybe I've, over maybe I've done it a little too much. But, no, I, I, tried to be, I tried to be as enthusiastic when somebody else scored as when the Jets scored or the Coyotes scored. Of course, it's, a, it's, it's not real. Because uh, when you travel with a team and uh, spend time with them, attend their functions, you get to know them a little bit. You're obviously going to be pulling for them, but inwardly. Yeah, and that's what I was going to ask you. Um, not so much about pulling for them, because I think you, I don't think any human being could could be that close to any situation, right? And and not have that that side of it. But who are some of your favorite? We can go both sides. Uh, who are some of your favorite Jets players that you got to know um, personally and 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 maybe not maybe not the obvious one so people i know i i'm not i wasn't trying to lead to this but the keith kachuk thing is a good example because a lot of people have a bad taste of him in this city and from everything i've ever heard he's just the greatest guy i'm not trying to lead you to him but anybody in the jets history or coyotes history that that's a little off the path that you really liked or really got along with 
Well, there were a lot of them. I, you know, particularly when I was in Winnipeg and I had the opportunity to interview them uh, more regularly than in Phoenix, where it was uh, the interviews were done by somebody else. But you spent a lot of time. Todd Walsh. <laughs> a lot of time talking to people, and, and uh, you know, you didn't lead me to Keith Kachuk, but he's certainly one I would mention because I know what you mean. A lot of people uh, did not like Keith Kachuk, but I'll tell you, he was uh, very fair to me all the way through. Always treated me well, and and was the first person, almost the first person who called once uh, I, I uh, fell out of favor in Phoenix. And, and I, I, you know, I respected that. So, um, and other guys, uh, you know, so many of them. Uh, Paul McLean became quite a good friend afterwards. And he was an assistant coach, in fact, in Phoenix. And, of course, was very successful right. with the Jets. And, and I always liked Tim Waters and uh, Laurie Boschman. There, there were so many of them. I Again, I'm in a situation where if I start running... Um, Make you mention of people I appreciated. I'm going to miss some I didn't. So um, let's just say there were very few, very few I didn't like. That's that's a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> and what? Okay, so we can go back to 1986, 1987, and of course 1990, which are the fans' favorite favorite moments. What were your favorite moments for Jets 1.0? What were to be in a building? Um, and see and be able to be a part of that. What were some of your favorite moments? Now you can't hurt anybody's feelings because those no, are moments. No, I can't. Well, obviously, I think the first moment that uh, the first two moments that come to anybody's mind when they think of that team would be the day of a double overtime goal mm-hmm. when people were absolutely convinced that this was the year they were finally going to knock off the, the Oilers in the playoffs. They took that three-one series lead in dramatic fashion. So that moment stands out. But I think the most impressive thing I ever saw was uh, in the Timo Solani year when he had all those goals. And I recall we came back to Winnipeg after being on the road, and Timo was at, uh, what was it, I guess 46 goals. And the bossy record was 53. Or he was at 47, I guess. The bossy record was at 53. And uh, I remember thinking, ah, it's too bad. It would have been really nice if he could have uh, bettered Bossy's record at home. But they were going to be home for two and be on the road for five. So the way he was scoring, it figured to happen on the road. And then to score four in the first game and three in the second oh. game, get exactly seven over those two games, that was just, to me, an absolutely incredible achievement. Yeah, and I wasn't at that game. Was that that had to have been a playoff atmosphere when he scored that goal? I mean, when you watch the clips, I mean, it just it just seems like it was. There's, you know, it's interesting because I'm in the process of writing a book actually, and that's one of the stories that I've written about. And uh, so I, I went back and I looked back on the, on the history of that goal, and he scored the first goal in that game 15 seconds in. Didn't he bank it off of somebody? Didn't he bank it off the goalie or off a defenseman? The the first goal, at at least the way I had it written, the first goal came on a breakaway. Okay. And then the second goal in the second period came on a wraparound. Right, that's the one I'm thinking of. And then the third goal, of course, the one that uh, broke the record was Ty Domi flipped the puck, and then there was a race between him and goaltender Stefan Passet for the loose puck. And and, uh, he got there first, flipped it over the goaltender into the net, and uh, then, of course, the the uh, shot at the glove up in the air and uh, the place was just absolutely bonkers. It always drives me nuts that Dallas Eakins didn't catch the glove when when it was right in his hands. He was meant to be a hockey player, not a football player, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned... Oh, go ahead. What's what's forgotten about that game is uh, right after that, the... the, uh, Was it the Nordique? Scored four goals in four minutes and won the game. Really? I I didn't remember that. Yeah. (laughs) 
Nobody remembers that, and uh, because the the moment was uh, was when the goal was scored. The rest didn't uh, didn't seem to matter at that. Yeah, no kidding, no kidding. So you mentioned a few players there, and I was going to ask you something that I've always wondered: is do you or have you asked the players how to pronounce their names? Yes, I have, uh, and I remember asking Freddie Olison one time how to say his name, and he said Olson or something like that. And I, I looked at him, and I can remember it was at a golf course, and Scott Taylor was standing with me, and so was Scott Oak, and there was uh, three or four other people who were covering sports in Winnipeg at the time, and I think we were at an aqua golf course for some kind of an event, I guess the announcement of, of Olison and whoever came at that time. And I said, would you be offended if we called you Olison? He said, no, call me Olison. So that's what we did. And, uh, yeah, so I did ask players how to pronounce their names. And, and I'm sure uh, some of them were probably incorrect. But it's, it's, always, it's always been an interesting thing to me, especially when the guys change their, <laughs> their names halfway through their, their career and such. It's, it's, it's an interesting... Uh... And sometimes they even change the pronunciation. Yeah, and uh, and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but I've always said a person's name is his own. I mean, if he, if you spell it Smith and pronounce it Yahalnitsky, that's your business. Yeah, it's true. I I, I think it's a big deal myself. Uh, when Line A first came, I thought it was kind of funny how people were all over the map, kind of saying his name, and I was like, let can we just let him, hear him say it, and then we'll say it that way. And I know it's tough sometimes with the foreign languages because they have accents and 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 whatnot, but. I think it's important to get it right, and I think again another another thing about yourself is I it seemed like you you always did. You know, I think I had an advantage though. I went to uh, school in a Slavic area. A lot of people of Ukrainian descent were classmates of mine, and they had names, uh, you know, close to Russian sounding. And I I learned how to say their names. It just was uh, part of growing up at that time. And I think that really helped. Oh, wow, that's an interesting interesting tidbit. So. The Jets get ready to leave, and I was talking with somebody else before here. You had the misfortune, if we're both correct, of not being on the radio for the last season. Is that right? Yeah, I was doing television the last season. You just did TV. Was that planned, or was that because of the way it went with it? It looked like they were gone, and then they came back. Yeah, no, that was uh, that, that was a deal where... You know, nobody knew exactly what was going on. It, it, at the end of '95, it looked like uh, they were they were going to be going, and and there was going to be that one basically lost season of '96. And then all of a sudden, uh, there was some momentum gathered. In fact, there was a there was a party at Thomas Dean's house, another one of my favorite players, Thomas Dean, and uh, a lot of uh, well-to-do, well-connected Winnipeggers had. And uh, they called a lot of friends who were in different parts of the world and uh, got uh, them to commit to, to contributing to the cause of, of keeping the Jets in Winnipeg. And so everybody got uh, an impression, a hope that things were going to be saved. And, and I believed it. I absolutely believed that the team was going to be saved. And I remember there was a get-together at the corner of Portage Avenue and, and Main Street. And the, the announcement was supposed to come at 2 o'clock that afternoon. Mm-hmm. And when uh, 5 after 2 came, 10 after 2 came, you could just see everything was beginning to get quiet. And by about 2.30, there was no announcement. We all knew what uh, yeah. it was over. Yeah. And how did that, like, how did it affect you? Because I know, 
I mean, as a fan, it's different. You, you've got both sides of it because you're a fan and it's your job, right? So how did that how did that affect you? Oh, it was devastating. I mean, yeah. I was like uh, just about everybody else in Winnipeg, but as you say, it also was my career. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about looking elsewhere and seeing what else was out there at that particular time, still hoping the Jets would stay. But, uh, no, then they, then they moved on to Phoenix, and I had no reason to believe at that time that I'd be going with them, but that uh, did happen. So speaking of that, you went to Phoenix, and um, I did everything I could to stay a fan, to be able to hear you any chance I got on Fox Sports West or whatever it was. And uh, and on the radio, I believe I could. Uh, for the first couple of years, I think maybe you were on the radio? First couple of years, uh, yeah. CKY Radio carried uh, the, jet, uh, the Coyote games the first couple of years. And you guys, did you simulcast them and you did the radio before Bob Hedos took over, something along those lines? No, initially I did radio in Phoenix. Okay. And and then uh, they went into a simulcast, and uh, I did those, and then eventually I did uh, strictly television. Okay. And how did okay, how did that market? First of all, before we talk about Phoenix, how did that market being in a big market with with not an aggressive fan base compared to coming from a Canadian market? What was that like? That transition, that that feel for you. Well, it was totally different, absolutely different. I mean, here everybody was talking hockey all the time, and, and there you got very little hockey information. When I got down there, they had three all-sports stations, and I would uh, sometimes tune into all three at different times to see if anybody was talking hockey, mm -hmm. but they wouldn't. And that's when I realized that the talk show hosts, for the most part, are know-it-alls. And if there's something they don't know, they're just going to ignore it. Ah. So they would, they would be talking about football, baseball. It didn't matter what time of year it was, mostly football, because uh, hockey was foreign to them. And, and I often thought, why don't they call a guy like myself or somebody who's been with hockey and come in and we'll sit with them for half an hour and we'll have some hockey discussion. But I guess maybe they thought the market didn't want it and they didn't know it. And uh, it was strange sometimes would be and how much they ignored it in the early going. And then how did it grow? Like, um, I've been down there a couple times for games, um, and I, I, I mean, obviously, being a, a Coyotes fan for as long as I was, I was a, a defender, because in my opinion, they have a lot of hockey fans, maybe not enough of them or in the wrong side of the city. But how do you, how do you see that? Yeah, well, it did grow, but, you know, something that's lost is there was uh, a hockey success story Prior to the Coyotes mm -hmm. getting there, the Phoenix Roadrunners were were a successful team that won a couple of championships, and, and oddly enough, uh, they sometimes uh, outdrew the Phoenix Suns in those days. So there was some interest in hockey, and uh, of course, I became well aware of it because my dad preceded me down there and was the voice of the Phoenix Roadrunners for, I don't know, seven or eight years, something like that. So he was aware of the interest that there was down there, but it was you know, just pockets of it. It wasn't something widespread because a lot of the people are, I guess, of Latino upbringing and uh, they don't have a whole lot of ice to skate on in Mexico. So it, uh, it's a different, <laughs> a different situation. Yeah. So that... Um, I, is there was there something that happened with with the Coyotes that they let you go? Was it just time? Um, I, I if that's too personal, I understand. I just there's I've often heard that there that it didn't end the way it should have ended. No, it, it certainly didn't. No, um, I got uh, I got caught between a psychopathic coward and a, a man child on a, a 
on a power trip, I guess you could say. And I was the victim. And is that not to get too specific from the hockey club or from the from the uh, the well, other no, they, side? They had a new president there. Yeah, they had a new president, and uh, things just absolutely fell apart under a man named Doug Moss. Mm-hmm. And uh, people were fired literally every day, and it was too bad because I thought we had done a pretty good job of, of building something within the organization. He came along, and then uh, and uh, he was actually someone who was uh, recommended by Gary Bettman after Wayne Gretzky oh, boy. and uh, Steve Elman had taken the team. Oddly, they didn't have anybody as a candidate to be the president, so they they brought him in and things began to fall apart, and then there was a change over at uh, the television station, and uh, someone uh, got S, uh, elevated up to the general manager's position who should not have been. It was a Peter Principle thing. Other people had turned the job down. He got on a power trip and uh, went after me. So, I and why, I don't know. It's uh, it was just one of those things. So yeah, it's uh, I'm still bitter about it. Yeah, and that's okay to be bitter about it. I I mean, you uh, you, you mean you, you have basically you and Shane Doan are the and I'm not even talking about the Jets connection. The Coyotes. I mean, that you guys were the face of that franchise, and uh, that it's just you know it's so sad that uh, all of that. Uh, <sighs> mumbo jumbo that happened for those few years happened because it cost cost some things and i know i met shane a couple of years ago and he told me he was ready to leave at a certain point despite what he says publicly um because of those sorts of things yeah there was a, a lot of really bad things a lot a lot of really bad things were going on at that particular time and, and uh you know i mean i wasn't the only victim by any means yeah, well, that's a shame. And to uh, I, I was worried this whole time that I'd be a little bit fanboyish, and it, so I will continue. When the Jets came back, I thought uh, everybody's like, "Bring back the old logos, bring back Van Halen, jump." And I and I insisted to people, the only thing that needed to be brought back was was you. And I really wish that the Jets would have made that happen, if if that uh, means means anything. So well, it does, and I I appreciate hearing it. I was hoping that. Uh that maybe I could uh, be a part of uh, what was going on here too but I think there was a uh, hesitation to bring back too much of the old uh, I know Mark Chipman made it quite apparent that he didn't really want to call the team the Jets mm-hmm. and, uh, but people wanted it and uh, he did the right thing and uh, you know he, they, they had kept something like the whiteout it's really a good thing that they kept the whiteout that was a big part of the tradition and I think people enjoy it and it kind of helps with the identity and it's a real playoff picture locally so yeah, I was hoping, but uh, that wasn't to be the case. Yeah, uh, which is for me, uh, honestly, it was a shame. Like I said, that's the one holdover. I think we should have, uh, you know, we should have done. Um, Thank you. Um, you're welcome. Um, what What's the difference, Kurt, between the TV and radio? Because we've talked about that a few times. As far as um, I don't find that there was much of a difference with you calling a game on TV or radio, but maybe nowadays there is, or, or the preparation. What's the difference on, on, between TV and radio? Well, TV, uh, radio, actually, you do more of your own work than you do on television. Radio is more work. Uh, television, you've got uh, you know quite a staff doing different things. But as far as the actual play-by-play is concerned, I can remember having to decide what exactly to do. And, and I talked to different people about it, and I said, now, people can see. I'm not their eyes when it's on television. Mm-hmm. Do I change it? Do I say less? And uh, for the most part, people said, no, do what got you here. And 
you know, and I've watched television over the years, and I think when they moved down into the U.S., so I didn't use Mike Emmerich as a, as a prime example. I watched Mike Emmerich doing television in the early years of uh, NBC, ABC, whatever it was, and I thought, he's saying so little. He doesn't say much. And lots of times on television, you can't tell exactly where the puck is. You can't tell exactly who it had, who has it. And I thought it would... He, he was kind of the, the evolution, because then I heard him do a game on radio. He was doing the New Jersey Devils at the time. I thought, wow, this guy's good. Mm-hmm. That's the way he should call a game on television. And now he does. Now he includes everything. And Yeah, he's got a little bit of time on an icing to make other comments, that sort of thing. But I, I really think the play-by-play should be more closely connected than the way they were doing it in those days. And now I think for the most part they are, but uh, there is some conversational play-by-play. You know, I think what happened, too, is that when it went down to the U.S., the broadcasters there had a history of doing baseball and football, where there's action right. and there's a play. And there's not the constant. And so they get into this conversational style, and I think it takes away from the game. I think when the game's on, basically the play-by-play guy should be telling you what's happening. And when there's a, a whistle, that's the time for conversation. And, of course, where hockey's concerned, if you want to do an interview, there's two intermissions. What to, that's when you do it. <laughs> that's right. And, and especially in the States where you're looking at a situation where, I mean, honestly, the first few years you're talking about, well, we can't find the puck. I don't specifically when I watch a game watch the puck. I watch the play. If I have if I have somebody's voice telling me this is what's going on, that's gonna that's gonna enhance your enjoyment the, the whole way. So I that, it, it makes complete sense. Who yeah, that color puck didn't work so well. <laughs> that didn't work so well. But I, again, I don't. I never found that necessary. Like I said, I'm gonna watch the play. Right? You, you yeah, after you, you watch enough play. hockey, you know where the puck is. Yeah, you do, and uh, it's, it's, it was a learning process for a lot of people. And I don't think you can fault people for trying different things. But at least they, they realized, hey, this isn't working, and they got rid of it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I had something. Um, oh, now I've lost my spot. Um, we're talking about commentators, and I know this is something maybe a little off topic, but I think it's super relevant. Uh, Leah Hextall, uh, she recently got... Uh, Promotion to do some play-by-play. What do you? How do you feel about something like that? That's okay. It's got to be fantastic. I don't absolutely. know. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Anybody who's qualified uh, should be doing the job, and and I think it's it's great for Leah. I haven't uh, heard her personally to call a game, but but I, I think it's uh, it's a positive step. I guess where I was going was with with the who you like to listen to. Um, some of your favorite guys in the past or currently, if there's any up and comer commentators that you like you mentioned doc and then of course in the past some of the guys uh who who are way way back i mean uh, i had two favorite hockey broadcasters and i'm really talking way back one obviously was my dad i listened to him a lot and i totally enjoyed it he did an exciting style and the other was uh, the late danny gallivan i thought he was outstanding and he's probably uh too far back for you to remember Mm -hmm. because i think he was calling games in the 60s maybe into the 70s but he did the Montreal Canadian games, and I can recall, you could never tell, I could never tell, that uh, even though he lived in Montreal, that, that he might have had a Montreal bias. So, and I, I thought he did a good job. And both of them had, uh, both of the people that I liked listening to, had more, had better vocabularies. Hmm. They would come up with different phrases, different words, and, and I, I thought that was that added an element to the broadcasts. Oh, now I'm trying to think of the one you coined about two years into uh, when you moved to Phoenix, into Coyote Country, I think you'd say, when the puck got 
got dumped in. Uh, and that, that was one that, that I liked a, a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you know, you're always trying to come up with something a little bit different because it dawned on me one day that, you know, you could almost call a game in robot mode. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think you did. Right? Sometimes you're more with it than other days. It's like anybody on any job. And I'd say, you know, I just did play-by-play for five minutes, and I don't remember a thing that just happened. Where was my mind? Right. <laughs> this happens every once in a while. But, you know, the funny thing was, I, I can, in my early days in Winnipeg, I used to kind of grade everything I did, and I'd be driving home, and I'd be saying, ah, I, I feel pretty good about what I did today. Other days, I'd be going home, and I'd be chastising myself. So i got to be better than that. So one day, I picked up two tapes, one of the game I thought I was especially good at and one I was especially bad at, and I realized they were the same thing. There was very little difference. Uh. One or two. So, so I basically, I think after a long time, you develop consistency, but you try not to, you hope that you're not repeating yourself too often. Yeah, and I mean, and like you said, it's such a repetitive sport, it's really impossible. That would, that's impossible not to. So you do, you, you do your job and try not to get complacent, just like anybody else, like you say. I, that's the best way to look at it. Who, who, who do you cheer for now? How much hockey do you watch? You know, I... Uh... I don't watch near as much hockey, obviously, as I used to, but, hey, I live in Winnipeg. Of course, I, I follow the Jets, and I'd like to see them uh, achieve success. So, uh, yeah, I'd be a Jet fan. Yeah, that, and that's that's what I think everybody, A, expected, and B, would like to hear, so that's fantastic. Here's something I just thought of. How, uh, maybe not so much when you first started, but how hard was it to learn all the players' names? From the visiting from the visiting team, you know what? That actually, I get asked that question a lot, and really, it's it's very simple. And I'll give you an example. Let's just say the Winnipeg Jets were playing the Edmonton Oilers back in the day. Well, you know all the Jets because you see them every game, so that cuts it in half. And then you're going to know Gretzky, you're going to know Messier, you're going to know Curry, you're going to know Coffee, you're going to know Fewer, you're going to know Low. So on any given night. There might be three or four guys who you're unfamiliar with. So what I would do is I would take a look at them, and I would take the six or seven names that I thought I might not remember and be able to associate with numbers or anything, and I would just write them on one sheet and put it in front of me. And if I needed to, it was right there. Nice. Down. But obviously, I never had to put 99's name down there. Right. See. <laughs> so, and that was just an example with uh, with the Edmonton Oilers. So right. Sometimes if a team would come from the east, that uh, maybe the Carolina Hurricanes or whoever you weren't that all familiar with, and uh, there might be a few more names to put down, but never more than seven or eight. So by the end of the first period, you had them all for sure. And is that because you're watching hockey on your off days and you're, and you're scouting or, or doing those sorts of things as well? I noticed once I stopped playing video games that I stopped knowing all the players from all the other teams. So when a team comes in to watch, and I'm watching, I don't know half the guys either. Um, so is that from as, watching as much TV that you do know, like you say, the third line right winger on Carolina? Yeah, I guess that would have been uh, exactly what it was. I mean, you were exposed to it every single day, and, and sometimes, too, once uh, the NHL package came into being, and, and if I knew that uh, in a couple of days down the road the Carolina Hurricanes were going to be a team that I was going to be doing a broadcast of, I would watch their game that night and try to familiarize myself with it. Might even write down the power play, uh, personnel, that sort of thing. So, 
you know, I did some junior hockey a few years ago, and that's more difficult because now you've got people on both sides. You've got 40 players out there, and you may not know any of them. <laughs> right. And that's when you're spending a lot of time, you know, with the glasses on your end of your nose, and you're spending as much time looking through the glasses at the paper as you are at the, you know, what's going on <laughs> on the ice. And that's more of a challenge. Particularly, I remember doing a game in Winkler where you're seated at one end. Oh, boy, yeah. And there's no names on the jerseys going one way. And, of course, coming the other way, you can't see any numbers. <laughs> so that was a little bit. Anytime you hear a broadcaster say, here come the Hurricanes out of their own zone, that means he doesn't have a clue who's got <laughs> That's fantastic. That's great. So things wrapped up for you, and uh, I... You, the biggest response I got when we said we were, that you were going to be on the show was to find out about your experience making Goon. Uh, <laughs> everybody that doesn't know you from from Winnipeg Jets, Phoenix Coyotes, knows you from there. We have a good friend of the show, Thomas, who lives in uh, the Northeast United States, and the first thing he said was, ask him about Goon. So we got to know a little bit about that. Yeah, no, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> that was something else, too, that just uh, uh, materialized out of nowhere. And I had the opportunity to go out to Portage La Prairie, and, and I had never, ever thought it would be part of a movie. But it was doing what I had done, and, of course, uh, well, with a little bit of a different taste to it, because uh, the movie was fun. It, it, was, it really was a lot of fun, and I got to, to work with some interesting people, and... You know, it's it's unusual to have lines there. But what they did, which I appreciated, they said, look, here's your lines, use them. But if you can throw in a few of your own, by all means do. And I had that liberty going, so I read some of theirs and I used some of mine. And, and it was it was just a lot of fun. That's fantastic. What else have you got going on on the, on the, on the stove these days? Well, I did another movie last summer, um, something... Uh, that, that uh, hasn't come out yet. It was a story about. <laughs> it was a story about a guy who sued Monsanto. Okay. To grain in Saskatchewan, so I did that, and I'm supposed to be in another movie this uh, this coming summer. I don't know if it's happening or not. Called the Gong Show, but uh, so that's that's basically what I'm doing. Uh, the odd thing here and there. And you see myself out of trouble. And you mentioned a book as well. Yeah, that's what I've been spending a lot of time this past winter uh, writing a book. And, uh, in fact, it's pretty well done. I'm within about a month of, of getting it done. And, and then I'm going to see if I can get a publisher and, and see what happens with it. That's fantastic. I will be in line, uh, maybe maybe first for that one. So that's that's you great got a good to know. Name for it? I haven't come up with a name yet. You know what? I'm the opposite guy. I'm the give me a title and maybe I could write the story. So okay. <laughs> you got the wrong. Oh, geez, that's too bad. Yeah, I, I was thinking about just something like Tales from the Booth, and then I looked in the uh, internet, and somebody already has a show called that. Of course, isn't that yeah. that's where you're at, right? They say stand up comedian got to watch a lot of stand-ups you're not reusing jokes and now with I mean lucky thing for Google now so that's yeah <laughs> that's that, that's a good thing Kurt I uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time I we're just uh, so many people excited it sounds like you're going to be our most popular guest to date um, I uh, thank you so much for joining us and I did want you to stick around after we say goodbye if I could ask you something else so but been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm Kurt Kielbach.
Jack, and thank you for listening to the Jet Centric Broadcast.